Thanksgiving. It, uh, it's sparse, but we're here, few and strong. Uh, well, welcome, everyone. If, uh, if we've never met, uh, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Ryan Longfield. My wife, Suki Longfield, is up here in the front. Uh, we are the senior pastors of this church, and we also have a wonderful other special guest up here in the front, Pastor Mama Vera up here. <laughs> so uh, Vera, for those of you who don't know, is a part of the founding team of this church, and she is one of our overseers. So she is the one of the people that Suki and I go to in our times of need and has been a great source of life to us over the years. So thank you for being here. We owe you a lot, as you know. Um, and one other announcement before we get going. Uh, I would like to announce to you for the very second time, Mr. and Mrs. Stephen and Katie Abadi over here. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, we had uh, a beautiful wedding in sunny Napa Valley yesterday. Uh, we were praying for good weather. We were praying for no smoke, and we got both. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. The joy of the Lord was there. So happy to see you guys. San Diego tomorrow, we will be praying for lots and lots of fun down there. All right, so let's jump into our text for today. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through the book of Matthew. We are in chapter 27, right towards the end. So uh, follow along, if you will. We are now at... The part of the story that is probably the hardest one to preach on. Uh, we, are, we are at the most important day in all of human history. Uh, we are at the singular event that probably most expresses the heart of God towards humanity. And we're at the event that's the most important one, uh, again, in all of human history. So, small task today to talk on that, but we're going to be talking about the, uh, the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in verse 27, we're going to pick up the story here, in chapter 27. It says, Then the governor's soldier, soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. I promise I'll be more definitive about other things than the pronunciation <laughs> of this word. <laughs> Um, and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. I'm going to keep reading, but before I keep reading, um, just a bit of context. So right before this, um, the governor of the time pulls Jesus before him, and the Jewish people, the, Jewish, the religious leaders of the Jewish community had sent Jesus forward to Pilate, this guy who's the governor of the Roman, uh, the Roman army at the time, and they put him before him, and they made this accusation that he was in rebellion against Rome. Uh, they told Pilate that he was a revolutionary, and that he had come to cause trouble, and that he had called himself the king of the Jews. And anybody who called themselves a king in this society was seen as a rebel, and so therefore he's being put in front of Pilate 
to be charged as a rebel against Rome. Now, what would happen is in these courts, uh, the governor would hear from one side, and then he'd hear from the other side. And in any situation, for some reason or another, where the prisoner would refuse to speak, then he was assumed to be guilty. And so what we see is that Jesus refuses to speak. He's before Pilate. Pilate says, you know, make your case, basically, and Jesus doesn't say anything. And, uh, and, and, and Pilate says, hey, you know, I have the power to crucify you. Don't you want to make your case? They're saying that you're the king of the Jews. And he doesn't, he doesn't say much. And so what we have now is Pilate walking this thing out. Pilate puts Jesus in front of the people, and he says, hey, we have two people here. We have Barabbas, who's this guy who's a, you know, a real criminal, and then we have this guy, Jesus, and he's trying to get a way out for Jesus. He doesn't, you can tell he's split, and he doesn't want to do this. And, but the people say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so finally, Pontius Pilate says, as you will, his blood is not on my hand. And they say, no problem, his blood can be on our hands and the generations be, that go uh, behind us. And so that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves now where it says that, that Pilate turns him over to, uh, to the soldiers to be crucified. In verse 32, let's continue. As they went out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. So what this would be is the cross beam. Um, you know, there's obviously two pieces of this, but oftentimes the, the stake in the ground, the singular vertical stake would stay there, and then they would have the, the person, the convict in this case, uh, carrying the, the cross beam. So this would be the cross beam. Um, because of the beating that Jesus had just um, taken on himself, uh, he is too weak to carry his own cross beam. So they grab this man from Cyrene named Simon, and they force him to carry the cross beam. <clears throat> they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who, are, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness covered all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling on Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. 
And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the Saturian and those who were with him, uh, those who were with him guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. I'm going to stop there. So this is clearly uh, an intense passage for those of us who love Jesus and have experienced his goodness and his love. To read a passage like this is always tough. I remember uh, the, the, the first time I saw that movie that Mel Gibson made, The Passion of the Christ. I sat in the theater for probably a half an hour afterwards just sobbing. Because I think something that, you know, you read on a page your whole life, uh, sometimes it just doesn't hit, especially if you've heard it read off of a page your whole life. But then in this particular case, when I saw it, and, I, and for some reason at that moment, I saw that that, that was for me, it, that it became personal. It, it came from like a, an intellectual exercise into something that drew near to my life. And one of the things that you'll notice in this passage as we kind of break it apart and talk about some of the details and find out what it means to us is that this term is used uh, when Pilate turns Jesus over. That's the same term that's used when Judas turns him over in his betrayal of Jesus and also when the religious leaders of Israel turn Jesus over to Pilate. It's this really specific term where it's basically like handing him over. And what we see in this passage is we see that as much as Pilate is trying to have no blood on his hands, he is the one that ultimately gives him over to be crucified. But what we need to realize here is that there's a bunch of different parties in this that have turned Jesus over. It's not just Pilate. It's not just the Romans Throughout history, there's all of these different things of like, oh, did the Jews kill Jesus? Oh, that's anti-Semitic. Or, oh, did the Romans do it? Oh, that, you know, like the, that's the certain rendering of history. Or, oh, did, who did it? The, the, the thing that you really see biblically is that we all did it. That's the first starting point. This is, this is the, the bad news before the good news. Judas, one of his closest friends, turned Jesus over. The religious elite, the ones that were supposed to welcome the Messiah more than anybody else. This beautiful man walks around for three years doing these works of love, freeing people from demonic influence, healing people from their infirmities, teaching them correct doctrine when they're imprisoned in their mind in these religious orders that are not life-giving. He goes around giving his life for people, and at the end of it, humanity cannot accept him, even though that's the way that he's lived his life. And they end up crucifying him. 
But I think the first thing that we need to realize is that what the Bible tees up here is that you've got the nation of Israel out there chanting, crucify him, crucify him. There could have been a way out for Barabbas to be the person that was rightly put on that cross. And then you have Pilate, who's the ruler in charge, the political system in this case. He crucifies him. Judas, in a sense, turns him over to be crucified. His disciples betray him, and he goes to the cross alone to endure this alone. There are so many parties here. There's no one that we can just say, oh, the crucifixion of Jesus was on this party. That is not biblically how this is set up. And so I think the first thing that we need to realize if we're going to talk about great Christian doctrine and the type of doctrine that ultimately sets us free is that no matter what our backgrounds, no matter where we came from, no matter whether we feel like it was a little bit of sin or whether it was a lot, lot of sin or, or what, or whether we've done a huge thing or we've done a small thing, whether we were Pilate, the one who turned him over, or whether we are just a small voice in a crowd or a disciple that turned away, we all, in some senses, are responsible for the blood of Jesus. The way the Bible puts this, and in, 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 the Apostle Paul puts this, is that we are all enemies of God at one point. That we are all, not in a neutral place with him, not in a, maybe not best friends, but okay place with him, that we are all enemies of God. That we had lived our lives, that we had chosen things in our lives that would put enmity between us and God. And the reason for this is because who we see God to be in the Bible is this perfectly holy and righteous God. Nothing can pollute him. Nothing can, wrong can go through his mind. No action can come out of him that's not perfectly good and righteous and true. It says that the foundation of his throne is justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so we see humanity that continues from the very beginning all the way back from the very beginning of Adam and Eve to, to, to Cain and Abel, the next generation, all the way down the line, the story is written over and over and over the same way. It's that humanity continually, no matter what the revelation of God that they have, they continually turn away from him. They continually reject his ways. And they continually end up in a pit and a mire of their own sin. And I told you this a few weeks ago. I was talking to my hairstylist, and <laughs> nice transition. I was talking to my hairstylist. I should have called it like a haircut or my barber. My barber. I was, I was talking to my barber, and we were talking about we were talking about how messed up things are these days. We were talking about how people are just hurling insults from one side of the aisle to the other. Yes, I mean that intentional wording, one side of the aisle to the other, and attacking each other's character and slandering one another. And, 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 and she was just like, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's hope in, in like the next administration or something like that. I can't remember exactly what she said. And I was just like, I think this story's played out, you know? I'm not putting any hope in the next administration. I think that this story of humanity has played out. It turns out that left to our own devices, we're kind of not that great to one another. We kind of all deceive, and we kind of all are selfish, and we all kind of vie for our own good. And this thing, this story's been written. The next chapter, it's not a mystery. 
And I think that's exactly what we see in the crucifixion of Christ. There's all different types of parties involved. And really the only one that is the spotless lamb, the only one that is the spotless one without guilt, is the one that's being hurled insults at, the one that's being turned over, the one that's being called a rebel, the one that's they're saying he's worthy of death. Like this, this is humanity. In the view of perfection, in the view of righteousness, it's too much. In the view of the Son of God, in the view of the perfect one, it's too much and people have to kill it. They have to do away with it. And that, I think it's helpful for us to all have as our starting point, myself included. We are all on level ground with this thing. We can't look to somebody else and say, you're more wicked or you're more wicked. Or, that, that doesn't work. We were all enemies of God. And in that very environment, Jesus came to experience the unthinkable. Think about the various dynamics or elements that Jesus goes through in this one experience. For me, I'll tell you right now, I'm soft. I'm really, <laughs> I wish I was tougher. I'm not. I'm actually pretty soft. He gets rejected by his friends. He gets rejected by his enemies. He gets falsely accused for a crime that he did not commit, charged by the, by the political system of the day, put up for a brutal beating. In the passage, what we see is that he refuses the wine with the gall in it. What is this part of the story? How, why does he refuse the wine with the gall in it? Both the wine and the gall have numbing agents in them. And so you almost experience kind of the compassion and the mercy of the soldiers in some senses because they're, they're giving him something to numb the pain right after they've lashed him, which I'll talk about in a second. But Jesus refuses the wine and the gall because he so wants to identify with the full pain of humanity. He wants to be the savior that knows the deepest depths of the human experience and not shortcut any of it. Even when he's in an environment where he's being betrayed on all sides, wrongly convicted, beaten to, down to the bone, he still rejects it because he's got a mission that his father has put him on and he's dead set on accomplishing it, and part of it is identifying with the depths of human pain. See, if Jesus didn't identify with the depths of human pain, then somebody could experience worse and look to Jesus or look to God and say, well, you don't understand the thing that I'm going through. Yeah, Jesus, you were all of these things, but you never experienced this thing, and this thing, you just like don't get it. Jesus experienced the fullness of the human atrocity towards him. Abandonment, beating, crucifixion, rejection from people close to him, all of it. And the crazy thing is, is he chose to take it upon himself, and he chose to experience all of the depths of it. The beating that Jesus received was whips of leather, and they were, they were cut, so they were like thick leather, and then they were cut. And 
what they'd do is tie knots in the leather, and then what they'd do is they'd take a bone of an animal, and they'd shatter the bone, and then they'd tie the bone into the strips of leather. And so when they beat somebody with it, the strips of bone would slash the skin and make strips of bloody skin. And so when it talks about Jesus not being able to carry his own cross, that's why. That's what he just came out of. He went through this experience where he was pulled apart by the people that he created. The the last one that I I just want to kind of share with here is that you know, usually what we see as the depiction of Christ on the cross is him naked with a little loincloth. Uh, I think the reason that we probably do that is because we can't fully be real about what really happened there. Usually they crucified these criminals naked. But I think we, we like myself included, I don't know that I can see the, the, full, the full thing, right? So, you, you know, you see the one where Jesus is up there and he's got the loincloth and he's ripped and, you know, like, there, there's a, a softened version that we see because this is just too intense for us. It's too intense when it's not the one that you love. It's too intense when you don't identify him as the son of God and your savior. And then when you realize that he was doing all of this for you and I, it just takes on a whole different thing. See, this is the ultimate expression of God because we were enemies of God. We were the ones that deserved what he got. We were the ones that were supposed to be sitting in front of the court and having people be like, have you seen this person's life? Have you seen what this person has done? Did you see the way they deceived in this case? Did you say the way they're horribly selfish in this case and denied their brother and received mercy from God and then went out and used it for, for rebellion? All the stuff that we, that we know that my life also screams. We're going through this time right now where Kylie is learning that lying's no good. Our little four-year-old. And she is lying left and right, man. It is crazy. She's lying everywhere. It's constant. And like, we just, we just come out ready to do this stuff. We really do. And if you've ever been in a situation where you know the right thing to do and it's just so hard, like everything in you is just wanting to do it, you know. Uh, here we see a model of Jesus where imagine what he's going through and he could just say to Pilate, I didn't say these things and he's off the hook. Or he could just call a legion of angels and wipe out all the people that are doing this to him. There's so many ways that he could get out of this But instead, he walks this crazy path because he knows that the outcome that's on the other side is worth going through this for. But the joy set before him, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the the cross. What is the joy set before him? The joy set before him is a reconciled humanity unto God. You see, God's vision for humanity was that all, every single one of us, both corporately and as individuals, would be in a connection and a relationship with him where he poured his life into us and we poured our love and our life back into him. 
that there's this beautiful thing that he created all of us where we would love each other, we'd receive his love, we'd be able to be empowered to love one another, that we'd be holy and spotless, and that we'd be in connection with him where there'd just be this, this perfect, like, circular thing of exchange of love, and I would lay down my life for you, and I would lay down my life for God, and he would lay down his life for us, and this, this beautiful exchange of probably what the perfection of family looks like. Where we're all sharing, like you don't have your stuff and you're hoarding it for me and I don't have my stuff and selfish and there's none of that stuff. There's perfect provision. There's abundant love. There's no need for forgiveness because we're always operating in love. There's selflessness. There's kindness. There's patience. There's gentleness. There's kindness. And this is how God intended for all of this to be. And then we see what it is today and we're like, whoa, that is a very different thing than what I just articulated. And so we had this setup where we were separated from God, living so far from what he intended. And what Jesus did here is he took on for us, onto his body, the punishment that we should have received for the life that all of us have chosen to live. The reason why the cross is so crazy is because if there was any other way for humanity to be reconciled back to their creator and the father chose this way, Jesus, he was horribly cruel. Horribly cruel. People say, oh, is Jesus maybe one of ten ways or, you know, is he just a good idea that shows the love of God? Like, if you really know what he endured and the fullness of the pain he experienced, remember, he was like sweating blood in the garden. This wasn't, you know, Jesus removed high and lifted up from this whole experience. God intended himself to get right down in the muck with us and receive the fullness of God's wrath on our behalf. The full punishment of God's wrath coming down on Jesus in this moment. And so one of the most crazy things about this entire passage is when Jesus is hanging on the tree, or hanging on the cross, and he reads, he, he screams out in this loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he yell out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does Jesus really think that God has forsaken him in this moment? I would say, I would propose to you that yes. That, there, that this, this isn't a softened version of just a reference back to the Old Testament that we'll talk about in a second. But the fullness of God's wrath is being forsaken by him. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've lived times in my life where I've felt my distance from God. And it's horrible once you know what it is. Once you've experienced God's closeness and his intimacy and what it feels like to do life with him, and then you feel him far off, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And you can imagine the son of God who has perfect fellowship with his father, who knows him intimately, who hears from him constantly, who's understood him from eternity past, for the first time ever feels separated from God and feels forsaken by God 
He is experiencing the fullness of this on our behalf. And the only reason, the only way that this makes sense in any regard is if, if, if he has to. If Jesus is just one of many, or he was like just a good dude, and you know, he had some good teachings, the father was horribly cruel when Jesus was in the garden to, and saying, is there any other way? And he hears from the father, no, there's no other way. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. The joy that's on the other side of this for Jesus that compels him through this moment is a reconciled humanity to one another and to God. And this is the only way that it can happen, is Jesus taking upon the punishment that we deserve in order to be reconciled to him. Now, this statement that he makes here is a really interesting one where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It comes from Psalm 22. And what would happen oftentimes in this time is if you wanted to reference a passage of Scripture, you would say, uh, you would say a line that usually was the beginning of a, of a chapter of this book. And so in this case, Jesus is referencing directly Psalm 22. And so I want to read for you Psalm 22 because it's, it tells us something very specific also about what's going on here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Okay, so this is where it starts to get very specific to Jesus' experience. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's got everyone scorning him, insulting him. He's going through incredible pain. He screams this thing out, referencing this passage of Scripture. And, and listen closely to what this says. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like post, post, potsherd. I don't know what that is. And my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me and a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. So clearly both of these things are true right now. They pierce my hands and my feet. Actually, in crucifixion, most times they would use ropes around the feet and the hands. And for some reason, in this case, they used nails um, in verse 16. So they pierce the, my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare at me and gloat over me. 
they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That's a really strange one, right? They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Do you remember in the passage where it talked about the soldiers casting lots to, to spread his garments? But you, O Lord, don't be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. It goes on. This is one of the most powerful messianic psalms that that exists in the Bible. This is written, uh, I think, about a thousand years before this moment. And there's things as specific as them casting lots for his garment and his hands and feet being pierced and, um, you know, other things like his bones being exposed. But this was one of the, this was one of the psalms that the, the religious people, when they were looking forward to the Messiah, they knew that they would have a suffering servant, Messiah. They just didn't know exactly how he would come. And so this was one of the things that they would cling to and that they would read when they talked about the Messiah coming in the future. And it's so specific in referring to Jesus. The reason why I think this is so powerful is not just because it's, it's neat, you know, in that it proves that Jesus was the Messiah. Like, that's great. I think what, what I want to hang on here is that this was really, really God's plan. Like, this really was God's design for how this whole thing was supposed to go down after sin had entered the world. And I think the thing that we see here is that God is so good at having a plan B. God is so good at taking our mess and launching his grace into that scene and cleaning up our mess in a way that's not at all free to him. But he is so ridiculously loving and so ridiculously good that he's not scared to get all into the fabric of our mess and to clean it up. And I think if there's anything that the cross of Christ communicates to us about who God is, it's that he's not scared to come down from his lofty place and do the dirty work. You know, oftentimes people will say, well, how could a good God tolerate pain and suffering in the world? Well, one of the things, if you're looking at the, the biblical God that you need to incorporate in there is that our God got more into the suffering of the world than any other person on earth. So if your concept of God is that he's far removed from the thing that's going on here and he's tolerating pain and suffering in the world, you're just totally missing one of the core attributes and core expressions of who God is. This God didn't tolerate pain and suffering in the way that we think he would of far off, stay removed from it. This is your mess. You go clean it up. He comes down. He enters into all of it, and he cleans it up from the inside at a great cost to himself. But this was God's plan. This was the only way. This was the design. And at the end of this passage— we see why he went through all of this. In verse 51, right after he gives up his spirit, he says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So let's talk quickly about what this means. The, the, the temple was the holy place where they would go and they would have all worship uh, in this time. And what they would do there is uh, very lavish sacrifices to atone for sin. But what there were, where there was a set of temple, there was a set of curtains, 
And one of them was separating the most holy place from everything else. So what this was is a visible, rec- this was a visible display that God's holiness was so intense and so other that nobody could get near it. And so it was said that the presence of God existed behind this temple, I mean, beside, behind this, this uh, curtain. And only once a year would somebody enter into that place. And the person who entered that place had to get really, really, really prepared. There was a bunch of sacrifices. There was a bunch of cleansing rituals. And then still this person walked in because if there was any defilement, the person would die immediately. So there was this very visible representation of the thing that I just talked about where God's holiness and the realness of our humanity and our stuff had separated us from God. And this four-inch thick curtain was kind of like the, the visible display of, of this dynamic. And so what we see when Jesus dies and he gives up his spirit and he experiences the fullness of God's wrath so that you and I don't need to experience it, what it says is immediately this curtain was split right down the middle. And what this represents is not just an access into the holy place. It is that. It, it, it represents that Jesus' body just was ripped in two, and now we have access to the holy place through his ripped body. But it's also a breaking out of God. It's both. It's access into the intimate place for us, but it's hope and it's power for humanity and the world because God breaks out from something that was very specific to just Israel, just just the people of God. Only the ones that, that were going after God could access him here. And then the curtain rips. We have access in, but also God blows out into the world. And now there's hope for all of humanity because God leaves the holy place, if you will, and can now permeate the entire world. And so what's crazy in this thing is that we see is the first people that recognize that he's the son of God after he shows himself as the dying Messiah are the ones that just beat him, the Romans that just beat him and put him on the cross. It's Gentile believers. It's not the people of God. It's not the people that you would expect. It's not his disciples standing right there. It's not even the women who cared for him that are right there. It's these Roman soldiers that see what went on and immediately they know and they have this repentance moment of like, oh my gosh, this truly is the Son of God. But if we break this down and we take it out of, you know, religious speak and veils being torn and, you know, the temple and all this stuff, what this means for us is simply that we have a God that is so good that even when we spit in his face, even when we mock him, even when we turn away from him, he is still providing for our repentance. He's still waiting for us to turn around and to receive him as Savior. The Bible puts it this way. Sometimes a good man will die for a good person. A great man will lay down his life for a great person. But who lays down their life in this way for a bunch of people that, let's be honest, 
aren't that great. There's only one. There's only one. There's only one who has walked a pure life. There's only one that could be the spotless lamb. There's only one that could be the sacrifice that we needed to be reconciled back to God. And somehow in God's crazy idea, after the fall, after we eat the apple, after we turn away from God, and after that continues for thousands and thousands of years, where people continually turn away from him over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, the long-suffering God still stays engaged, still sends his son, his plan is still to forsake him, and all of this to reconcile humanity back to himself. And so the reason why God does all this stuff represented in the, in the veil being ripped is that there's a oneness that's welcomed back with our creator. And it doesn't just end there. It starts with a oneness back to our creator, but then it allows us to step into our created purpose and then be conformed into the image of this crazy savior that we just talked about the thing that he just went through, we then are empowered to walk in the footsteps to do what he did. We're then given the love and the provision internally to be able to live a life that looks like the life that he lived, where we're not fighting for our own provision. We're not fighting for our own rights. We're not trying to justify ourselves before the courts. We're not shocked when our friends betray us that we're able to endure long-suffering because the, the, the God that was confined to the holy place now fills you from the inside out and fills you with all of the provision that you need in order to be what he was to the world, to the world. So it's like only God could come up with a crazy plan like this. And then certainly only the Son of God could be the sacrifice to make the provision for you and I to be reconciled to him. I only have one more thing that is on my heart to say. And I think if you've been in this church for any amount of time, you know that I like to make y'all laugh every once in a while when I'm speaking. I like to talk about really happy and hope-filled things. I like to, you know, keep things light most of the time. I think it's really good for us every once in a while to revisit this, because this is as intense as it gets. It's not fun to hear about Jesus's flesh being split open. It's not fun to hear that our place apart from our, our receiving him as Savior is one of being enemies with him. Like, that's not, that's not fun news to hear about. But I think it's important for a number of reasons. The one, that I, the, the one reason that I want to highlight today is I want us to not take lightly the cross of Christ. I intentionally want this to kind of be a sober moment for us. Because throughout human history— even after Christ, Christians have been asking the question, okay, so what, what does this mean for my life? You know? And even in the time of the, 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 the first church, when the Apostle Paul was one of the leaders, 
In Romans chapter 6, there's this interesting passage at the beginning. It says, he gives a rhetorical question that was being asked in the church at the time. And it says, he says this, should, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Should, should we go on in our old lifestyles now that we have access to this amazing grace, this, this God who did the unspeakable? Should we, should we go on sinning in our lifestyles so that like, now that there's endless provision, can't we just continue to live as we've been living and like, you know, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So that's pretty cool. So doesn't that give me liberty to just like go and live the life that I'm wanting to live in my flesh? And what Paul says on the other side of this, this question that's been asked throughout every generation and is certainly being asked in our generation, he says, may it never be. What? what? May it never be. The, the, the one that died to save you from, from your destructive lifestyle, both to you and to the people around you, the one that, that, that very shed his blood in order that you could walk in holiness and in purity and love, like you want to go on sinning so that grace may abound? Like what? what? Do you understand what you're saying? And in so many different ways in the, in the writings of Paul and other New Testament writers, they basically say the same thing, which is, hey, we have the stories of Israel. We have what it looks like when they rebelled, when they turned away from God, when they took his provision lightly, when they kind of received him as God but kind of went their own way and did other things. And it always ends the same way. And that was under the judgment of God. It was separated from God again. It was God turning away from them and letting them experience what life was like away from him. And the New Testament writers say the same thing. They said, we, we have the example from the history of Israel. God's the same. Don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Like, don't treat his provision lightly. And so I think as fun as it, it isn't is to have a moment like this in church, I think it's really important for us because I'm your pastor. And to some extent, I'm accountable for your souls. And if I allow us to live in a situation where we think that we can just kind of live however we want and that God's just, you know, this puppy dog, merciful dude who always loves, and, you know, that's, that's not the biblical God. That's not the biblical God. The biblical Jesus is the lion and the lamb. The biblical God is one of extreme holiness and extreme love at the same time. And so if you get into a situation where your emphasis of one attribute of God is so strong that it starts to eclipse the other attributes of God, you've fallen into error. And there won't be life on the other side of that. And so I think it's good for us to have sober moments every once in a while where we realize, wow, it's, it's because of the holiness of God that we see the wrath of God on Jesus. Jesus is the perfect display in this moment of both. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have had to be under the wrath of God if the holiness of God wasn't something 
that was a non-negotiable. In the cross of Christ, you see the fullness of both his judgment and his wrath and his seriousness about sin and, and how intense he is when it is when, when, when you and I harm one another, how, how much he hates injustice in this world, how much when he sees sex trafficking, it's a, it's a violent father getting up when one of his kids is being abused and all he can do is like move into wrath. Like these are the types of things that we see in the cross of Christ and in the wrath that's displayed there. And I think it's good for us to remember that it's the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God that's just as displayed in this moment as it is the love of God. And they happen exactly in the same moment in their fullness. And that as we walk with God, oftentimes one of the hardest things about walking with God is that he feels kind of like a living contradiction. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever felt that in your walk with God, but it, he, feels like, he feels like a living paradox. And there's these constant tensions with God where, man, he's extreme and he's holy and he's intense and, whoa, he's so gentle and he's so comforting and he's so kind. And it's like, yes. And it's our job as his followers to navigate that tension with the, with the spirit of God that he's given us to navigate truth. It says in the word that the spirit of the living God was given us to navigate all truth, to, to be led and guided into all truth. And man, for me, one of, the, one of the most mysterious, probably the most mysterious applications of that is God himself. It's like if we try on our own merits to figure out who this God is without the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we're going to end up in extreme heresy because we'll start emphasizing the parts that we love and minimizing the parts that we don't like. And we're going to end up with a puppy dog God that's just not him. And I think, you know, like, when you start to navigate the, the intensity of God in these ways, what it does allow you to do is it does allow you to look at the pain and suffering in the world, and it does allow you to say, wow, God really cares. I don't know why he still allows it to exist in the way it does, but what you can't say about him after understanding who he shows himself to be at the cross, is that he's far removed and he doesn't care. Because we see him in his fullness saying, the stuff that y'all are doing down there is not okay with me. And that didn't end at the cross. Just the provision of it was satisfied at the cross. And so we have a situation here where we were, we were fully, rightly, um, it, was, it was justice for, t for us to sit under the wrath of God in this way. But the love of God intersects the wrath of God. And he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the way that we actualize that into our life is so simple. He doesn't ask for 
some crazy extravagant thing. He doesn't, he doesn't demand that. What he does is he says, put your trust in me. Declare and recognize your need for a savior. Declare and recognize that apart from God, all of us have no shot. And I'm not, I mean, we, there, when I say no shot, I mean no shot at being reconciled with him, but I also mean no shot at joy, no shot at healthy relationships, no shot at not being swallowed by the things that so easily ensnare us in this world. Like, how do you do the work world and not fall in love with mammon if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Spend nine, ten hours a week working your job, where your treasure is, there your heart follows. And if you don't have the Spirit of God moving in you to push against the evil forces that exist there, we don't have a shot. And you can translate that into anything in this life. We, do not, we don't have a shot. And so what God requires is a very simple recognition, I don't have a shot. I don't have a shot at knowing who I am. I don't have a shot at joy. And I certainly don't have a shot at being reconciled to my creator in a way that I can receive his love and his grace. And so the cross of Christ blazes the way for you and I to fall on our knees before him and say, God, I don't have a shot. But you, God, in just the right moment, when I was an enemy of yours, when I was spitting in your face, when I was the one mocking you, when I even experienced your goodness and then I still turned away, just like a lot of the people that were surrounding him, yeah, in that very moment, that's when you decided to do the unspeakable for me. And I don't do this lightly. I do this understanding what it cost him, that it cost him everything. I don't do it lightly, but I say, God, I need you. God, I need you. I need you in every aspect of life. I don't just need you to get me into the kingdom. I need you to keep me in the kingdom. I need you to help me with my family. I need you to give me every breath of my life. I'm so, the, the more I walk with God, the more aware I am that if he lifts his presence for me for even a day, I end up in spirals and depression. Even a day. I think the journey of walking with God is realizing every second that we just need him more than we thought we did the moment before. And I think actually what maturity oftentimes looks like is an understanding of new levels of how much we need him. And, and new invitations of his grace in our life. The, thing that I, the things that I've noticed over time is I, there's all of these different areas as I back out my life. I've told you guys about this one. This one time I tried to preach a sermon and I was so confident in the content that I purposely like didn't pray beforehand because I was kind of like, I got this thing. It was awful. Like I couldn't, I couldn't even like I couldn't even say a word. I mean, it was ridiculous. You were there, weren't you? Oh, it was so embarrassing. Were we dating? 
Oh, even worse. Oh my gosh. I had brought these guys that I was discipling at the time, and I had brought the woman that I was dating and that I loved and was trying to impress more than anything. It was so bad. Like, it was such a great talk on paper, and there was, there was no grace on it. It was horrid. And I remember leaving so embarrassed. I wanted to leave immediately right after the talk was done, like run out the front door and call, crawl under a rock. And I left, and in my better moment, after getting over the shame and humiliation, why did you stay with me? Oh my gosh, it was so bad. <laughs> I got to a place where I, I got before the Lord, and I was like, God, I, I see to a very different degree how much I need you every moment for this to happen. And I feel like my life from that point on has been a recognition and an invitation, a recognition and an invitation, a recognition and an invitation. Not just a recognition, because a recognition is just part of it, right? Like, it's a recognition and an invitation. The recognition that I can't do it and the invitation that is he can and wants to and will. So much of this life is God is present now and God has provision for whatever you're going through. And I feel like he's just waiting for us to have recognition and invitation. God, here's another... You know what's nice about this, actually? The nice part about this is that your weakness stops becoming important. Right? Like the first one, it feels really important. It's like, whoa, I actually can't do this. And you're like shocked, right? Like, wow, I better pray this time. And then after a number of these, you just go, oh, yeah, there's another area that I can't do. Oh, I can't even be happy for a day apart from your spirit. Whoa, okay, like didn't realize that one. Like, oh, I, I can't, I can't even pray without you. Oh, gosh. Wow, I'm really a miserable friend without you. Oh, wow. Okay. But after a few of these, you start to realize that it doesn't, it's like not the most important part of the conversation. It's like, oh, okay, there's another area. Ooh, like that's a good area to invite God. And the thing that almost always blocks us from these areas is either one, thinking that he'll do it without your invitation. It's biblically just not true. Or two, um, I totally forgot what the second one was. The first one was good. <laughs> oh, I remember now. Thinking that you don't have to, and then shame. Shame's the second one. The the recognizing the lack or recognizing the, the weakness and then going inward rather than going upward. These two things are the things that most often pe keep people from the grace of God. The provision from the cross is complete, but the recognition and the invitation, that's all he requires. That's the crazy part.
He doesn't ask us to pay him back. It's the recognition and the invitation to say, Lord, I knew I needed you before, but man, do I ever need you now. And thank you, God, for the cross of Christ. If it just ended with justice, we'd be done. Do you know how oftentimes I tell the devil that, by the way? He goes, oh, you screwed up there? Like, oh, if it was about justice, this would have ended a long time ago. This isn't about justice. This is about an invitation to the most merciful person that's ever existed. And so let me just invite up the, the worship team. We'll go into a time of reflection. Do you have anything you want to say? I did have something to say. It was a couple points back before um, Ryan started saying a bunch of stuff, but one of the, <laughs> which was really good. <laughs> sorry. I'm going to, uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, I can't even get back on recognition track. Recognition of sin and invitation for forgiveness. Okay, you see how my marriage is run, right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, no, uh, while I was sitting there, I think um, I really love that we did this. I know that we've been going through the book of Matthew for a really long time, um, but everything hinging upon the crucifixion of Christ, this thought has been going through my mind. Um it's really important for us as we are navigating and going through um, this particular time in human history for us to know what is truth. There's a lot of crazy doctrine out there and some of it is going to try to get us to think that there are other ways that we can find salvation that there are other ways and other things that are true. And I felt like even as I was praying during worship, what God has been highlighting to me is, this sounds ridiculous, but we are going to have to spend some time unpacking that Jesus really is the only way, the truth and the life. There is no way that God would have come in the flesh and allowed humanity to do to him what we did if it was not absolutely crucial, essential. If all of our hope, joy, salvation did not hinge upon the necessity, absolute dire necessity of Jesus to undergo that. So it is essential for us as for people who profess to believe in Jesus, for people who are Christian to understand that Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and why that is, it is going to become one of the most important things that we stand on in these last days. There, there, we don't generally do this like, let's scare everybody into the end times thing, right? But, <laughs> like, that's not really kind of my thing. But I will say that in these days, this chunk of time that we believe are the general last days, it is important for people to know what they believe. That Jesus really did say that there is no other way. There, 
There's going to be a lot of people who say there's a lot of different other ways to get to heaven, that everybody is saved, that you don't need Jesus. But those things, when we start to hear those things, no, something is up, something is happening. That is not truth, and that is not okay. The reason what brought us salvation is when we claimed and professed that Jesus Christ was Lord, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, and because of that faith and that belief in what he did, we now are reconciled to Christ. And if we hear a different gospel that says anything besides that, we need to question our red alarm needs to go up because anything else tickles our ears and makes us feel like that would be really nice if God was just lamb. It would be really nice if God was just rules, but God is so crazy embodied in who Christ is. There is so much to unpack unpack about life and truth in the very essence and nature of who Christ was, what he did, and what was manifest in the cross itself. And we really, like my admonition right now is that we learn and we stand as unshakable to know what that truth is. It's going to become increasingly important. And there's going to be all these people out there that say, this is what we need to focus on. We need to focus on this issue, that thing, these, all these other things, even signs and miracles and how, and justice and this, this, this. But really, none of those are our Savior. Our Savior is in the person of Jesus Christ, and we must unpack what that is and who our devotion is to, because that is where our life is going to come. And everything is going to try to come against the assault of who Christ is, that he is not loving, that he is not that good, that the Bible is not trustworthy. Start to question when you hear those things. It is a sign that the devourer is trying to steal our hearts. And so even when we read the Bible right now, it is incredibly important for us to get in our hearts what is never allowed to be in question. And so that was the thing that was really on my heart because I think we can talk all day about the promises of God and we can talk about the love of God and all the things that may it be here on earth as it is in heaven. But whether or not we see those things, this can never change. And I think it's so important for us to remember that. Yeah. Amen. All right. Yes, indeed. That's my wife. All right. All right, let's stand together. We're going to have some prayer folks up front. If you would like to get prayer for any area of invitation where you want to have a recognition and an invitation... Uh, please come forward and they will pray for you. It's feeling late and it is late, but we're going to continue to roll with it. All right, let's pray and then we'll go into a short time of worship and prayer. But I definitely encourage you, even though it is late, if you felt like a stirring from the Lord, take this opportunity to do business with him. Come up and get prayer. It's always good to just have somebody to be able to speak it out loud and to be able to walk down the aisle and have like a physical response to something that God was doing, uh, stirring in you, it's really important. And so Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing in this place. God, we thank you that your spirit is moving 
And God, we just ask that you'd continue to do your great work as we go into a time of prayer ministry. God, that we go into a time of reflection. God, I pray that any areas of confession and repentance and business with you of just coming back to you, remembering you as Savior, remembering that as we come to you and ask for your mercy and your forgiveness, God, that there's nothing that can separate us from you. And so, God, we give you space in this time to come and be, be you. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Mm-hmm.